once again this morning to direct our attention to the prophet Jeremiah, chapters 34, 35, 36. Jeremiah, one of the what is termed major prophets, and major versus minor when it comes to prophets is not about value nor significance, but purely about how much territory is covered, the size of the books. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, considered major prophets by Bible scholars. Then the balance considered minor, and again, it is simply because of the relative difference in size. As has been our habit as we've gone through Jeremiah, a selection of readings from these three chapters. First in the 34th chapter, verses 1 through 5. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all its cities. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword, you shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Now down at verse 8, chapter 34. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed. All the officials and all the people who had entered in the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they'd set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. Chapter 35, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them, and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. I come down to verse 5. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they answered, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither, shall, neither you nor your sons forever. I come down to verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you've not listened to me. Chapter 36, verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Now come down to verse 22. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before it. As Jehudi read three or four columns, this is the prophecy, by the way, Jeremiah has had Baruch take down and written. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now our Father, by your Spirit, give life through the preaching. May this be more than the filling of our heads. May it be the changing of our hearts. Grant this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. In some ways, you could compare where we are now, in, in a sense, with Moses. Moses gets two mountaintop views of what God is about. At Sinai, he not only converses with God, but he also looks down on the people of Israel and sees their shenanigans. They cannot behave, live faithfully. They mess it up royally, and it's really the only thing they seem to excel at. They're good at being bad. But then along the way, after 40 years in the wilderness wandering, Moses gets exasperated, and when commanded by the Lord to speak to a rock so water would come forth, he not only speaks, he slams the rod of God that he had in his hand into the rock, and the Lord goes ahead and causes water to come gushing from the rock. But the outcome is Moses doesn't get to go into the land. And the Lord takes him up to Mount Nebo. In the plains of Moab, we read in Deuteronomy 34, to the top of Pisgah. I'm just here to tell you, I just ran across three names of Baptist churches that I have seen in the country 
side in my lifetime. I think I've seen a Moab Baptist church. I know I've seen Mount Nebo, and I've also seen Pisgah for Baptist churches. I don't think they paid much attention to the context. It was just a name, and it was in the Bible, so they ran with it. Is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. So here we are in Moses' case. The first time from the mountain to look down and see what's going on didn't turn out so pretty. In fact, it was a horrid, horrid mess. The next time he looks out from a mountain, it is all that God has promised, and he dies with the frustration of not entering himself, but the joy of knowing God fulfilled his promise, Israel would take the land. Now in Jeremiah's case, what we considered last time in those earlier chapters, 30 to 33, you could almost call that the optimistic view. The view there is Jeremiah seeing that God has promised a new covenant. And in that new covenant, he's going to do for his people what they cannot do for themselves. He is going to place his law in them. He's going to pour his spirit on them. They will all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. But after that high point here in the basically the midway of Jeremiah, we now get a dark view. Three events placed before us. They are not in chronological order. In fact, Chapter 34 is about the very end of Jeremiah's ministry, just prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Chapters 35 and 36 speak of the excuse me, 35, yes, 36, speak of the time when Jehoiakim was king of Judah. But in all of these three different events, the thing that stands out is Israel's response to the word of God. What did they do when God spoke? And in all these cases, the argument is made that rather than hearing and obeying, they were ignorant and they were arrogant. God spoke, but for them that didn't matter. Thomas Watson speaks in his body of divinity about how we should view Scripture. We may know the Scripture to be the Word of God by its miraculous preservation in all ages. The Holy Scriptures are the richest jewel that Christ has left us. And the church of God has so kept these public records of heaven. Oh, I like that. That's a great description of Scripture. The public records of heaven that they have not been lost. The Word of God has never lacked enemies to oppose and, if possible, to destroy it. They have given out a law concerning Scripture as Pharaoh did the midwives. 
concerning the Hebrew women's children to strangle it in birth, but God has preserved this blessed book inviolable to this day. The devil and his agents have been blowing at Scripture light. Now remember, this is a candle, so that's the imagery. Satan and all his minions blowing at the candle, the brilliance of the Word of God, but could never blow it out. A clear sign that it was lighted from heaven. My friends, what this comes down to is how are we going to respond to the Word of God? Neither ignorance nor arrogance is a right response to the Word. We should fearfully and faithfully hear when God speaks. Those two things ought to always be with us. Fearfully, faithfully. Fearfully, in a sense, trembling because it is God Almighty who speaks. Faithfully, that we will do what He says. Now let's see if we can see this more clearly. In the 34th chapter, the word of the Lord selectively obeyed. Now verses 1 to 7 begin with a promise to Zedekiah. Now the promise is bad and less bad. Here's the bad. This city's going to fall. Nobody's coming to your rescue, Zedekiah. It's going to happen. Here's the less bad. You're going to be captured, but you'll die in peace. So what the Lord promises Zedekiah is, you're not going to fall by the sword. Some foot soldier is not going to find you and hack you to pieces. A lesser general is not going to find you. In fact, you'll have a face-to-face with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and you'll die in peace. Now, this is a very vague word. Not a lot of detail to it, and we know the details, don't we? When Nebuchadnezzar finally brings Zedekiah to heal, he kills his children in front of him and then blinds him and takes him away in chains to Babylon. He does die in peace. He doesn't die in a state of warfare. But somewhere in the midst of all this, Zedekiah takes a notion to make at least one attempt to obey God. Now, I've got to say, he has no practice doing this. He has virtually no experience doing this. He is in unknown territory while he's trying. But here's what he picks. Freedom for Jews and indentured servitude. Under the terms of the Mosaic legislation, everybody was supposed to do their best to own property or to have enough assets that they could live on their own and care for themselves and their family. But the Lord knows that we're not all really good at that, and so there were laws and rules for caring for those who had struggles, providential things that kept them from making it, and all kinds of problems, which included up to this. You're a Jewish fellow, and you cannot make ends meet, and you're in debt. You could sell yourself into servitude. This is not like chattel slavery that we see in America in the 19th century. This is more indentured servanthood. But connected with that law was that a Jew could only be forced to serve in that way 
for seven years. After seven years, you had to be freed. There was also another built-in liberation. It was called the year of Jubilee. That was at the 50th year. And it didn't matter if one month before you had gone into indentured servanthood, the minute the Jubilee hit, you were supposed to be freed. Now, how many Jubilees did Judah and Israel celebrate? This is real hard. None. Not a single one. And apparently, they also were not paying attention to the rule about seven years. Interesting place for this act of obedience. Jerusalem's about to fall into captivity. So how about we keep the law of freedom for those who have sold themselves into servitude? And the commandments for this, Exodus 21, 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he'll serve six years, and in the seventh, he'll go out free for nothing. And then the Jubilee, you'll consecrate the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So what did they do? Well, verse 10, chapter 34 says, they obeyed. All the officials, all the peoples who had entered in the covenant that everyone would be set free, would set free his slave, male or female, so they'd not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. Now, if the chapter could end right there, hallelujah, they did something right. But just as sure as night follows day, verse 11 follows verse 10. And what are we told? Afterward, they turned around, took back the male and female slaves they'd set free, and brought them into subjection as slaves. Now, I know, you're sitting there going, wow, that's boldly wicked. Can't imagine anybody doing that. Really? You can't? You ever, you ever set yourself to obey the Lord? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the right thing. And one verse later, you're not doing it anymore. Mm. this partial obedience the Lord will not bless the Lord will not honor in fact he does a play on words at verse 17 chapter 34 therefore thus says the Lord you've not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty everyone to his brother and to his neighbor behold I proclaim to you liberty what's the liberty to the sword to pestilence and to famine declares the Lord I'll make you a whore to the kingdoms of the earth. You will not do what I said you had to do. You'll not obey me. Fine. So here's the liberty. I'm setting free the sword. I'm setting free pestilence. I'm setting free disaster. Famine on all of you. Now when I read that, my friend, I don't know about you, but there's the place that I also begin to tremble a bit. I wonder how much of our obedience as Christians is only a partial obedience. Oh, we may commit outwardly and act outwardly, rightly, but how often is the battle in our heart to have the right attitude about being obedient and to be joyful about obedience? Are you disturbed? I hope so. 
When the Lord speaks, we ought to obey freely, gladly, and fully. But Christian, is this not glorious comfort, knowing with trembling that your own obedience is far too often not wholehearted, that it is partial, that this is why you needed a faithful covenant Lord as your Savior. You needed a substitute. You needed somebody who not only outwardly but inwardly did what God said to do, and he did it for you. Well, that's, that's awfully easy, and that seems too good to be true. That, my friend, is the gospel. Christ has done for you what you could not do for yourself. The Lord brings you in, and you fail, you don't do it well, you stagger, you stumble, you whine, you cry, you fuss, and He doesn't kick you to the curb because in your place, the Son of God did what you could not. But my friend, should that not warn us about how we hear and respond to the Word of God. So in this case, the Word of the Lord selectively obeyed. Chapter 35, the Word of the Lord completely ignored. Now, this is an interesting chapter, the 35th here. We've gone back to the reign of Jehoiakim, which is earlier than Zedekiah. The estimate is this is around 605 B.C., give or take. And the Lord talks to Jeremiah, and he said, I want you to go, verse 2, to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. Now, when you read a little later about the Rechabites, you discover they were tent dwellers. They were only in the city because Nebuchadnezzar's armies had been marauding up and down through the land, and the only safe place was inside a walled city. So they are a nomadic sect within Judaism, but things have gotten so hot out there that they've had to come into the city. And so Jeremiah is supposed to get them, take them up to the temple, take them to one of the chambers, have the wine set out for them, and offer them wine. And then you read the story. It's a peculiar thing as you read it. What a strange thing for Jeremiah to do. Verse 6, they answered, we will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us. And then you get the whole list. Not to drink wine, not to build a house, not sow seed, nor plant or have a vineyard, but live in tents all your days. Now this is a peculiar thing, isn't it? See, what you have here is if you go back in biblical history, you'll find earlier... Jonadab, the son of Rechab, had allied himself to Jehu when Jehu is destroying the priests and followers of Baal after the death of Ahab. And he commands his descendants, what he saw in the city life, the gathering of people into communities and cities, was bad things happened. So here's his solution. If we go back to living like nomads, we won't be tempted that way. So what did the nomadic lifestyle entail? Well, you live in tents. You don't have vineyards. You don't plant. You live off the land. 
And of course, you don't drink wine because to have wine, you have to have vineyards. And if you don't have vineyards, you don't get wine. No. Now, that's all very peculiar. It's supposed to be. If you will, this could be almost viewed as the Amish would act in our own day. All right? They have found a point in history that they're not going to step beyond. And this is what the Rechabites have done. So when Jeremiah gets them into the temple, offers them there in the temple the wine, what do they say? No, we will not do this. Why will they not do it? Because of the tradition of their families, their heritage, they would not do that. Now think of it this way. They would have been viewed by Jehoiakim and most of the religious in in Jerusalem in particular as a bunch of country bumpkins who are just weirdos. But what you get here is a vision, really, of three religious views that are in competition with one another. You have the faithlessness of the religious leadership of Judah. You have the faithful weirdness of the Rechabites. And in between, you've got Jeremiah, who's the one who's doing what he's supposed to do before the Lord. The lesson for Judah here should be clear. These weirdos have lived faithfully to their ancestors' vision of the properly faithful life. Judah won't even attempt to live faithfully to the word of their covenant Lord. These guys are living this way, and it's weird to you, and he's not commending the the lifestyle. He's simply saying, one of their ancestors said, do it this way, and what have they done for generations? That's the way we do it. God himself speaks to his people, and they say, eh, I don't think so. Nah, I don't want to do that. Wow. And so here's God's faithful anomaly, if you will. He promises the Rechabites, they'll never lack a man to stand before me. Friend, here is the question, is it not? How often we we submit ourselves to human authorities? And I'm not saying that's wrong. There are times that you ought to hear and heed human authorities, right? Some of you are sitting there scared to say anything. When a police officer gives you a directive, all things being equal, you ought to do what he says to do, right? You find yourself in court and the judge tells you to be silent? Might be wisdom to be silent. Mom and dad say mow the yard? Maybe you ought to mow the yard. Hmm. And yet, why we will hear and heed human authorities. We act as though when God speaks, that it's optional. You see, my friend, that's when the word of the Lord is completely ignored. And then we come to the 36th chapter. And I call this the word of the Lord completely despised. Again, this is one of those that is, that is earlier. 
It was again during the reign of Jehoiakim. And the Lord commands Jeremiah to take a scroll, verse 2, and write on it all the words I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So Jeremiah calls Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. So here we have a demonstration of the word of God being written, inscripturated, I guess you could say. Multiple times the word is spoken. In fact, even in this 36th chapter, it's spoken by Jeremiah to Baruch so he can do the dictation, by Baruch to the people in the temple, by Micahiah uh, reporting on the reading to the officials, uh, by Barak to the same officials, by Jehudi to the king of Jehoiakim, and then at the end of the chapter, one more time, by Jeremiah to Barak. The command to write it down. Again, the hope being immediate repentance, but also a record for those who will go into captivity, for those who will be born in captivity, and for those who will eventually come out of captivity, that they understand why they were in captivity to begin with. The Lord's not going to count on his people to say, yeah, here's the reason we're here in Babylon. We wouldn't listen to the Lord. He's not counting on them owning any of it. But if there's a written record, it can be known. So Barak takes the scroll. He goes into the chamber of Gemariah. In the outer court, near the outer court. Apparently some royal officials kept chambers in the temple for official use. And Micaiah, I pronounced his name wrong earlier, the son of Gemariah, hears the word read and he is alarmed. I'm not saying he's repentant, I'm saying he's afraid. The whole thing, beginning to end. The whole prophecy. Well, can I just say this to you? This is why it is so essential, Christian, for you to have some kind of routine in your reading of the Word of God. See, when you bounce around all the time, and I'm, please, I'm not, I, I love devotionals that do a variety of texts. Spurgeon's Morning and Evening is one of the best things ever put down on paper, and it bounces all over the place. That is helpful, and it's good for your soul in small bites. But I'm here to tell you, my friend, it is when you go to the trouble and the labor of starting the beginning of a book and reading to the end of the book that you get the greatest benefit from the Word of God for you see how it all goes together. This is the reason we emphasize expositional preaching. It isn't because, well, it just makes it easy. He doesn't have to think about what his next sermon is. It's the next thing in the text. I will say that is a glorious outcome, which I do like a great deal. But to preach through books of the Bible lets you see the story unfold, the lesson unfold, the doctrine unfold, whatever it is that's going on, to see it in a unit. 
and to benefit in that way. And for that then, to create in your mind and heart the framework, the foundation, and the construction of Christian character. So Jeremiah has Barak write it down. Well, when word gets to the palace, the entire cabinet of Jehoiakim decides maybe they need to hear this. So Barak gets to read it again. Verse 15, they said to him, sit down and read it. So Barak read it to them. Now notice verse 16. When they heard all the words, they turned one to another in what? Fear. And they said to Barak, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Barak, tell us please, how did you, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? And Barak answered them. He dictated all the words to me while I wrote with them with ink on the scroll. Then the officials said to Barak, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. They know they're sitting on a powder keg. Jehoiakim already hates Jeremiah. So what's the action? Well, we've got to hear this word and we need to tell it to the king because it's really important. And what if this character Jeremiah is right, it is fearful to hear what he's saying? And by the way, boys, y'all better hide. This likely isn't turning out well. And then we come to this astonishing scene. At the 20th verse, they went into the court to the king having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. The king, then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. Now, he's giving us a little context. It's the ninth month. It's winter. It's cold. And the king had a portable heating system, probably on a cart, a fire pot that you'd be moved around and placed near the throne because you don't want your king sitting there shivering. That doesn't look good. Jehudi would read three or four columns. Now think about it. It's a scroll. It unrolls. It's Hebrew. He's writing right to left. It'd be in columns. Okay? And after he'd read for a little bit, the king had a little knife, and he says, here, let me have that. And he cuts that off. Where'd you stop reading? Right there? Okay. Got it. Throws it in the fire. And he reads some more. He takes his pen knife. He says, okay, that's a good spot. Cut. Fire. His response was wicked. For he thinks if he destroy, destroys the scroll... That'll be the end of it. There's only one copy. Remember, there are no Xeroxes. There are no flash drives. There's no iCloud. There, 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 there's not even carbon paper behind the pen. So you make, oh dear, some of you have no idea what I just talked about. Look it up sometime, kids. It, you can find it online. Back in days that were primitive, we used things called typewriters. And if you wanted an additional copy, there was some 
dirty, filthy, inky paper you could put behind the sheet and then put another sheet, and as you typed, it would strike hard enough that not only would you have the original, you'd have a copy behind it. They didn't even have that. Jehoiakim, says Jai Packer, burns God's word, ignoring its warnings. That's like getting out of a car to destroy a bridge outside. You do it at your own peril. Do you see how different this is than the scene of Jehoiakim's father, Josiah? Josiah, during his reign, they open up a part of the temple that had been closed down and they find a copy of the book of the law and they're reading it and they're going, oh man, we've messed up. This is how we're supposed to be doing this and we haven't been doing this. We've got to tell the king. And they take it to the king and the king, rather than destroying the scroll, rips his clothes and says, we've got to repent. Fearfully, faithfully hearing the word. Folks, I'll ask you just a quick question here. Has the word of God ever messed with your understanding? Your preconceived notions? Your thoughts of what is accurate, profound, straight up, sound doctrine? And you read the scripture, you go, wait a minute. That's Huh. Do you ponder for a moment that maybe you need to reconsider and think through what that text says? Or do you just get frustrated and close it up and walk away? Hmm. I'm reminded of a brother who had a member of his church, his pastor, and this is years ago, his one of his members announced to him after this pastor had been preaching about the doctrine of election and things like that, he announced to his pastor, he was a leader in the church, we're leaving the church. And he said, oh, you, you, you're leaving? You don't, you don't believe what I'm preaching? And he said, oh, no, I believe it. It's no doubt to me it's in the Bible. But if that's the way it is, I don't want anything to do with this. That's frightening, folks. Do you understand how frightening that can be? To actually be a member in good standing of a church and a leader, and when you're confronted with what the Word of God actually says, rather than saying, I need to think about this, I need to consider this, your answer is, oh, it's there, but if that's there, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm done. Wow. You see, the privilege, and again, this is Packer, the privilege of knowing God's truth with certainty and precision carries with it the responsibility of obeying the truth with equal precision. Folks, you can't separate those things, or you shouldn't. When you want to know with accuracy and precision what the Word of God actually says, that's a noble thought and a noble motivation. But if you're going to do that, then you better couple that with an obedience that is just as precise. Well, now, whatever shall we do? The king has burnt the scroll. Obviously, panic in heaven, right? Whatever shall we do? <laughs> well, here's what we do. Verse 
32. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. You think that's bad, Jehoiakim? Tell you what, I left some stuff out. Here you go. My friend, the Lord, the Lord never, the Lord never accommodates in this way. If you struggle with something the Lord says, he never looks at you and says, oh, I went too far, didn't I? I'm so sorry. Here, hon, let's, let's do this. I'll just lower it a little bit. No. I, we saw it a couple of weeks ago in John 6. Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And we read, well, boy, that's a hard saying. Who can hear it? Does that offend you? How about I just go back to heaven and let you die in your sins? How does that suit you? Uh, well, we're out of here. Bye. Now, that's not in the text, but it's the essence of what happened. I, I said it before, I say it again. Jesus had not only a church growth program, but a church reduction program. If you're not going to believe and obey, don't expect the Lord to make it easier. He will simply amp it up. Because this is not, this is not up for debate what God says. The Lord is not changing to accommodate you. The accommodation the Lord has made is in the person and work of His Son, where He becomes flesh, the glorious mystery of the Incarnation, that in His, his conception, His birth, His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he is doing all of that to save sinners. But he doesn't compromise his word in doing any of that. He fulfills his word. My friend, I'm not saying that we all ought to come to precisely the same conclusions every single time on every issue in Scripture. But I am saying, my friend, when the Word of God says it, you better pay attention to it, and you better figure out where you need to adjust what you think, how you believe, and how you act based on what it says. For this eternal Word shall never be revoked. If Jehoiakim had succeeded, there'd be no book of Jeremiah today. So here's my question. What is your attitude toward the Word of God? Are you hearing and reading it with both faith and humility? Can it be said of you that you would agree with Jesus when he responds to Satan who tempts him after days of fasting to turn stones to bread? What does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is indeed the question, my brothers and sisters, are we going to live by what God says? Now, my friend, if you're not a Christian, you're sitting there saying, you guys pay attention to a book that's a couple of thousand years old. What's wrong with you people? My friend, the problem is not something wrong with us. The problem is you're a rebel against the Lord, and you know it down deep. At times, you don't want us to know in places that frighten you, you think about it, and it terrifies you, because you know there's a God to whom you're going to have to give an answer. 
And this God has not left himself without witness. He has spoken. And he speaks to you through this word. Turn from your sin. Give up your rebellion. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Oh, Christian, let us love this word. For it's through this word we know our Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, save us from arrogance and ignorance of the Word. Save us from putting our faulty and foolish opinions above the Word. Forgive us, Father, for the times we know what you have said and we know what you have commanded, and yet we have failed to do it. O oh Lord, link in our lives not only belief but behavior. May what we believe show in how we live. O oh Father, by your word, by your spirit, bring grace for salvation to those outside of Jesus today. To those who are yours, bring encouragement and conviction and a new dedication to obey with joyful hearts. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.